says, for we are God's fellow workers and you are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And Father, we humbly ask as we continue now in the worship of you and your son, Jesus Christ, that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would help us to worship in spirit and truth, that you'd prepare each one of us accordingly to receive from your Holy Spirit what it is that you have for us. And we ask, speak, Lord, through your word. May it be your spirit speaking to our hearts as we study it together. And we ask this expectantly outside and inside. In Jesus' name we said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. You know, I certainly think that this last six months as we've navigated the pandemic with the virus and the things that have gone in connection to that, having to shut churches down and many people being kind of cloistered away for a season and a lot of the adjustments that we've all had to make. To some degree, I think there has probably never been a greater temptation for Christians to become a little bit lethargic, lazy, if I could use a stronger word to almost kind of be a little bit unproductive and to kind of drift off to sleep and to comfort in some ways. And, and I really think it's something we need to be careful of. I think it's something we need to guard ourselves in light of these times and just kind of the, the presentation of this season and what it's put before us. And I would ask this morning, especially in light of our text, that we would evaluate our hearts, particularly because it's Not only important to be growing personally, that's what our passage last week talked about, growing, but the other thing to ask is, is your Christian life also productive? That is, are you actually doing things to serve the Lord, to advance his purposes? Are you looking for ways purposely to try and be productive spiritually, doing things that would expand the kingdom of God, doing things that would benefit the work of the Lord? Are you engaged in the Lord's work in some way where you're accomplishing things for him? And I want you to know that's part of God's will for our lives as Christians, is that we would actually be productive and serving the Lord as well, doing things to work and build the kingdom of God. In fact, we see that in this passage. If you notice just from our cursory reading of it together, there are repeated references in these verses, two words repeatedly, build and work build and work, implying to us productivity. Yet it's also important we're going to see not only how and why we work as well, because the way that we work spiritually is very important also. So it's not just that we work, but also the motives. You know, why do we actually do it? And Paul's going to talk about this because the Lord is the ultimate building inspector, if you would, for his church. The church is going to be described as a building. And and the Lord's the ultimate building inspector on his house. It's his building. And he's going to evaluate the quality 
of how we worked and what we did as we served him. Remember the backdrop, verse 8, the latter part of it as we left off last time. Paul has just been speaking about how the mature person, the mature Christian, understands that the Lord is going to reward all those who faithfully serve him. In fact, if you glance just at the latter part of verse 8 as he was concluding our last verse, he said there, each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. So again, the Lord will reward all, each one, according to their own labor. That is what they do faithfully for the Lord, whatever that unique calling is. And look, whatever way the Lord has us to serve him, whether it's in our home life, as a part of our occupation or vocation, what we do, the way that we live in our community, among our family, or whether it's the way that we serve within the church as the body of Christ or doing outreach outside of the church, know that all that we do for the Lord is important. Every work of the Lord is essential. There's no one that's more higher or more important than another. The highest calling of God is to be what God specifically has called you to be. And here we see that the Lord rewards us according to our faithfulness to that unique labor he's asked us to do, to that specific calling that he wants for us. Again, whether it's parental ministry or whether it's just being a good faithful husband or wife, whether it's, again, serving the Lord through our occupation or as a Sunday school teacher or an usher or a musician or whatever that that may be, that we do it faithfully. And the Lord, it says, will reward each one according to his own labor. Now, with that idea of being rewarded for our spiritual labors, Paul carries on with that idea in verse 9 by saying, for we are God's fellow workers, he says, you are God's field, you are God's building. So Paul, notice, further expands on this idea of being productive as a worker for the Lord. And we learn that God is always at work, particularly amongst people's lives. Two things we take note of here in verse 9, first of all, is that God uses people to do his work. That is, God works in and through human beings, those who are his followers, as his tools. We're the tools in his hand. He's always working, but he chooses to work in and through our lives, referring to himself as well as to Apollos, who did pastoral ministry in the local church of Corinth, Paul says there, we are God's fellow workers. So whether it's doing pastoral ministry or for that matter, really any who are willing to get involved in God's work to some degree, the Bible calls us fellow workers with God. That is, God is always working. God is always on the move, doing things that he's seeking to accomplish. However, he wants for you and I to be able to engage together with him and let our lives be useful for his purposes. He wants us to recognize what he's doing. He wants us to pay attention to how he's working and look for ways to participate in that work together with him. It's quite a privilege, if you think about it, that not only do we just work for the Lord, but we actually work with the Lord. And there's a vast difference there. When you work for someone as an employee, you just do tasks that they assign you to do and they give you a task and you carry out that task or that assignment. You work for someone. But when you work with someone, it implies partnership. The idea is that in association and connection together with you, you're actually doing it together in partnership. 
And he says here that we are God's fellow workers. The idea is that we work with the Lord, that it's an actual partnership, that God is working and we just assist and come alongside. And ultimately, whatever we do for him, we don't do it alone. We're actually doing it together with the Lord in partnership as he just uses our lives and works through us to accomplish the things that he wants to accomplish. We notice that God also, secondly, is always working within people's lives because he says in verse 9, referring now again to the church, he says there, you are God's field, you are God's building. So he's referring now to the church and he uses two different analogies. The first one he uses there is he says, you are God's field. That is, those of us who are followers of Jesus, a part of the local church, we're liking to a field that God is always working in in different ways. And think about that analogy there. What is the goal of working in a field? Well, it's to bring forth a productive crop or harvest, correct? That's the whole purpose or goal of the work in a field is you're trying to do that work to bring forth a fruitful harvest and get that field to be productive, to be something that's profitable and beneficial, that actually helps and blesses other people as the result of what's produced in that field. And that's the goal of God's work within our lives as his followers. He sees us as his field, and he wants to work through our lives and in our lives to make us become fruitful and productive, that we might bring blessing to those around us. And think as well, what kind of work happens in a field? Well, you know as well as I do that soil is not left undisturbed. In a field that's going to be productive, the soil can't be left undisturbed. It actually has to be plowed up. That is, you need to drag a plow across it. There's an intentional breaking to soften and allow that field to have the removal of weeds and to be more receptive and more fertile in order to be productive. So that soil has to be broken and turned up and seed has to be planted. So things have to be planted into a field. It has to be watered. In fact, even sometimes you even got to spread that stinky manure all over a field. Well, look, the Bible says that we're God's field. And sometimes we may sense God working in our lives in these ways. I'm sure you've never had a week where you said, I feel like my life stinks. Oh, maybe it stinks for a reason. You put manure on a field to actually make it more productive. You may feel like there's a breaking process or like God's in a season where he's just really planting a lot of things in your life like never before. Or Again, but that's God oftentimes working in our lives because he sees our lives as his people, as a field that he wants to make productive and fruitful. And so he's got to work in the field. And God works in the field of our lives for that very reason. He also refers to the church by a second analogy in verse 9. He says, you are God's building. So he just picks another. He goes from agriculture or an agrarian imagery to now he uses an architectural picture. He says the church is like God's building. Again, Jesus' followers are like a spiritual house that God is ever constructing and constantly expanding. It's an ongoing construction site. The church is the purpose that we might be a spiritual temple for God's presence to dwell in on this earth as the Holy Spirit dwells within us and works among us as God's people. Remember, Jesus used that same analogy of a spiritual building 
himself. When he was speaking on one occasion, Jesus said regarding Peter's confession of Christ being the Savior and the Lord, he says, on this rock, I will build my church. So Jesus used that same analogy of a strong foundation and building as a description to the church. Ephesians 2, as well as in 1 Peter 2 as well, we are also likened to stones, to living stones, the Bible calls us, and stones that are being shaped by God so that they can be fitted into the exact place where they're supposed to be in the building, where they can provide the absolute best in their overall use and stability. So sometimes God's chiseling away at things in my life. Sometimes God's shaping us and developing us, and, and, and there's that whole process of like a stone being quarried that God may put us into the body of Christ and fit us right where he wants us to be for our absolute best purpose. Ephesians 2 says, In him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord, and you two are being built up together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his Spirit. So again, as you think of the church from God's perspective, in one degree, he sees it like a construction site where there's constant construction work going on. God is ever building in our lives. There's constant construction taking place, changing you and I. And ministry work, understand, therefore, is much like what verse 9 describes. Ministry work, whether as a parent, whether it's serving in the church, whether it's doing outreach, whether it's trying to minister in any way, it's much like working a field, and it's much like being on a construction site. That's the analogy that God gives. You can know ministry's happening when that's what it seems that's going on as you're trying to serve the Lord. Well, he now carries on with the second analogy of the church being like a building. He uses that analogy and he carries it further now in verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, he says, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So like any good architect, like any good general contractor, like any good owner of a building or homeowner, it matters to God that his church is built properly. God's a a general contractor. God's the owner of the building. God's the chief architect. And so it matters to God that his church be built properly. Paul mentions a few things here in our verses. First of all, he tells us what he did personally as a fellow worker for the Lord in the building process. He says there what he did in Corinth as he planted the church there and other churches he planted. Verse 10, he says, according to the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Now, a wise master builder cannot be just anybody who can swing a hammer. Nothing wrong if you can swing a hammer, but that doesn't exactly make you a wise master builder. A wise master builder understands the important responsibility of what it means, as well as what it involves to actually build something as the head builder, if you would kind of the construction supervisor the one who is responsible for what happens, how to labor and lead at the exact same time. And that's part of being a wise master builder is laboring and leading simultaneously. And the wise master builder knows sloppy work's not acceptable. Being wasteful in the construction process is 
foolish. Rather, that wise master builder uses wisdom in all decisions, in the way things are evaluated, in the approaches to the things that are being done and how they're being done. A wise master builder has to consider the right timing and calculate the proper cost of things and select the right materials. A wise master builder has to follow a good blueprint, have to make sure that you got a plan and what you're doing. You're not just throwing things together, but that you also not only have a good blueprint, but then you stay focused and you actually follow the blueprint. And you don't get distracted and make alterations unnecessarily. You got to remain committed when the challenges come and use experience from prior building. And look, that's especially important in laying the foundation, right, of any building. Because is it not true laying the foundation to a building is critically important work? And it's often the hardest work to participate in if you think about it. You have to almost kind of persevere because... You know, there's something exciting when you get momentum and walls start going up and you start taking paint colors and you can actually see it taking shape that you almost become motivated and people can start appreciating what you're doing. But who appreciates the guy that goes out and looks at a field full of woods and says, okay, I can envision something here where we're going to clear all these woods and then we're going to flatten all the land and we're going to prepare it and we're going to get all the drawings done and get all the approvals from the codes and the engineers and then we're going to dig a hole. And then we're going to get it all level. And then we're going to pour some concrete in that hole. And who's excited about doing that? Honestly, the majority of that work, which is the most important work, is usually the most unnoticed. And it goes completely unappreciated. It goes completely unrecognized in many ways. However, it's absolutely vital because that's what determines the success of the building long term. That's what determines really the stability of that building. And Paul says, this is what I sought to do as a wise master builder as I came to establish the church there in Corinth. He says, I tried to be a wise master builder that laid a good, solid foundation for God's work among you. And look, that's what a church planner is used by God to do. Like a wise master builder to go in and lay a good foundation to do that careful work of laying a spiritual foundation for a work of God in a community. That's the analogy. And look, what is the only proper foundation of God's building? Well, Paul wants to make that very clear. The Holy Spirit prompts him to say in verse 11, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid. The idea it's already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. Again, the person and work of the Lord Jesus is the only appropriate foundation for the church matthew 16 remember jesus was speaking to peter and it's on that occasion that jesus validated that when peter made that confession he said who do you say that i am and remember peter said you are the christ the son of the living god and referring not to peter oh my if the church were built on a person not to peter but to the confession that peter made that Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah, and the Son of the living God, the Savior. Upon that confession, Jesus said, upon this rock, that confession of who I am, I will build my church. Jesus says, I want to build my church, but that's the foundation of it. That very statement of Peter's that was made. Again, Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 2 also refer to Jesus as the chief cornerstone in a building. And the chief cornerstone is that most important foundational stone that's laid down first, and everything is then measured off of that chief cornerstone. 
Again, picturing Jesus being the foundation, which has been laid for all time, and that really is the only proper foundation for the church. Now, this is important by way of application, because look, the foundation of any local church is not supposed to be about necessarily a plan or model for how to do church. It's not supposed to be, well, we have this really great plan for how we're going to do church or how we're going to plant a church or, or the vision of our church. And, and sometimes it becomes all about the plan and the model. And the idea is it's like working a business plan. Well, the church isn't a business. To some degree, it has to operate like a business. I'm not discounting that. But the church isn't establishing a business and working a marketing business plan to establish and make a business profitable. That's not, that's not the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is not to be built upon some gifted person or some personality. Well, if we can just get the right person who's very charismatic and just, and if we use that gifted person, then we can draw and keep people by using a very gifted person. Nothing wrong with that, but that's not supposed to be the foundation of the church. The foundation of a local church is not about to be about the awesome music that a church can provide or a stimulating experience with lights and smoke and whistles and bells and ponies running through the sanctuary or, you know, whatever else you can do to where it's like, hey, we provide. And I hear this term even nowadays. It's not even, you know, worship gathering. It's, it's the, the 10 o'clock experience. The experience? What is this, a new amusement ride? Come to have the experience. Again, nothing wrong with utilizing things. I'm not diminishing that, but that's not to be the foundation of the church. The church is not to be built upon making a foundation that it's like a really great social club to connect to. And so it has great programs and lots of social activity. Again, nothing wrong, but that's not to be the foundation of the church. The foundation biblically of the church is supposed to be that it's founded upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the, the highest ideal is to make the focus on the promotion that Jesus is the savior of the world and that we are sinners in need of Jesus as a savior. To promote and constantly remind people that Jesus is Lord and what does it mean to follow Jesus as Lord? How do we live for him as Lord? How do we worship him assembling for that very reason that we assemble because the basis of why we assemble is to hear from Jesus and to spend time with Jesus and to experience Jesus, not have an experience, but to experience the Lord, to have an experience with him, to be equipped by the Lord and then used by the Lord. That's the appropriate as well as the best and proper foundation, the Bible says, for the local church. It's one of the reasons why in our bulletin, which we don't even look at anymore now, we don't even have one. Why the, the verse that I put upon our bulletin, I had it in our church back in Pennsylvania, we pastored there as well, is Colossians chapter 1, verse 28, where it says, We proclaim him, warning and teaching every man in all wisdom, that we may present everyone perfect, mature in Christ. Because to me, that, that's what I want to be about. We proclaim Jesus. What do we do there? We proclaim Jesus. We tell people about Jesus from the pulpit. When they need counseling, we point people to Jesus. We want to see everybody become ultimately mature in a relationship with Jesus Christ. In fact, in our bulletin, that was why we had this written in there. It said, Calvary Chapel has been formed as a fellowship of believers in the lordship of Jesus Christ. Our desire is to know Christ, to be conformed into his image by the power of the Holy Spirit. We exist to glorify Jesus foremost in all things, we desire to be a gateway. 
That's why we named it that. Remember that? Calvary Chapel Gateway. Probably never read that in the bulletin, right? We desire to be a gateway for people to meet Jesus and salvation, to come be strengthened and equipped spiritually, and then to go forth, because the gate swings both ways, to go forth and minister in the world that Jesus wants to reach. Jesus, never forget, is the foundation of the church. Well, how did Paul do this spiritual work when he labored? Well, you see what he says at the beginning of verse 10? He says, it was by the grace of God that was given to me. Paul says, it wasn't just that I was trained well or I had a good education or skills. Paul said, I operated in the supernatural power that God gave me. It was only by the grace of God given to me that I was able to do anything beneficial for God. He says, I accomplished my work of laying the foundation by the grace of God. And the Bible says in 1 Peter 4, each one should use whatever gift you've received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in various forms. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. Aren't you glad you get to be a fellow worker with God? That you can serve however you serve with the ability God supplies you to serve, that you don't got to come up with the strength or the skill on your own. Well, Paul didn't do the work alone because notice he says as well that others contributed to the ongoing building project to take it to the next stage. Because Paul says there in verse 10 as well, I've laid the foundation and then referring to Apollos who took over when Paul left. He says, and now another builds on it. So Paul planted the church. He pastored it for a season. But then there came the time where God wanted to move Paul on to plant and establish another church. And so Apollos took over the work as the pastor there, and he kept the building project going. He kept the spiritual construction happening there. So again, whether it's Apollos taking over a church or simply all the different people that serve in a church— That's the analogy that God wants us to have, that we are all workers, fellow workers with God. We all have something to contribute, and we're building on the foundation that was established by someone God used initially, but now we're all workers on the construction site, continuing to do our part and labor as we can together with God and one another. It's important that as good servants that we be quality laborers doing God's work, that quality matters to God. Paul, as a spiritual foundation layer, warns, in fact, if you notice the end of verse 10, all those who would continue to be God's workers. He says, look, we came in and and I did what I could, but he says others build on it. But then he warns, look at the end of verse 10, let each one take heed how he builds. The word take heed means pay attention. Do it carefully. Don't become sloppy or you know, avoid the error of doing something incorrect. One translation says each one should build with care. Look, the Bible's reminding us as God's servants, we should genuinely care about the quality of what we do for God, doing our best, taking heed that we do a good job and that when we serve the Lord and serve his church, that we recognize that quality does matter to God, that that's very important to him. And Paul carries on with this idea here of how and why we should minister in verses 12 through 15. With that idea in mind, he says, Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day, he says, will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort, what kind of work it was. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he'll receive a reward. 
If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself, he says, will be saved, yet so as through fire. So look, how we serve the Lord, how we serve his church in the different ways we serve among our local church determines if we're going to receive any eternal reward or not. That's what these verses are teaching us. As we build spiritually and work for the Lord, there are different ways that we can go about our work. There are different ways that we can serve. Verse 12 says that we can build using different methods and using you know, different ways and different kinds of materials. He speaks there in verse 12 of using, notice, gold, silver, or precious stones. And then the contrast, using when you build things like wood, hay, and straw. And those different materials are intended to picture, if you would, two different ways to build or work. That's what he's trying to depict there. Think about it. Gold, silver, and precious stones. Well, that's way more costly than wood, hay, and straw, right? That's the idea. It is the one who uses gold, silver, and precious stones is using what's more costly. It has more value, and it pictures what's also more stable long-term. It, it, what, what gives more strength? Gold, silver, and precious stones don't corrupt they don't wear out over time. They don't fall apart as easily. But it's also more rare to find things like gold, silver, and precious stones. You can find lots of wood and hay and stubble all around. It's the more rare way of doing things because you actually care that much that you're willing to put in the extra work and do what's rare and even pay the cost to use gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, the wood, hay, and straw, of course, pictures the, the common approach of most. Most people in that day would use, you know, gold. I mean, would use the, you know, straw and the hay and the wood as they built their very common homes. But there was minimal cost involved. It didn't require much sacrifice like it would if you use gold, silver, and precious stones as a builder. Yet, again, the stability and long term of the house built with wood and hay and straw was greatly diminished. Because those materials wear out over time. They rot. They decay. They're easily blown over by a, by a wind, and they're subject to falling apart. And that it was the cheapest and quickest way to build, and it didn't involve a whole lot of sacrifice. Well, the Bible is using this as an analogy to picture how we serve the Lord and how we work and how we build spiritually. The point there is we can really care about the Lord's work. And we can really care about the quality of what we're doing in spiritual matters and serving the Lord in his church and even how we build our own spiritual lives. And we can really care about that. And if we really care about that and think it deserves the absolute best over all other things, just like gold and silver and precious stones, we'll want to put forth the absolute best into the things of the Lord. It may make us a little bit more rare because honestly, most people may not all take that approach. It's the more rare thing it truly is to incur some cost as a disciple of Jesus Christ and say, look, I'm willing to pay the cost. I'm willing to make some sacrifice and incur some cost because the Lord's worthy of that cost. I see the cost he paid for me, and I'm willing to put forth some cost into this as well to serve the Lord, 
to work and to do those things that he has us to do in our lives? Are we willing to use those things that are truly valuable spiritually as compared to using worldly and material things? Are we going to use those precious things like gold and silver and stones, which would be things, in my mind, like the, the value of God's word, which is also pictured like gold and silver and, and precious gems in the word of God? Or are we going to use things that are precious and valuable like prayer and, and working in the power of the Holy Spirit and upholding a biblical standard and ethic in what we do and showing forth faithfulness, trying to build something that's stable and solid because it, it really matters and we want it to matter for the Lord. We want it to be beautiful and beneficial because we say, Lord, you deserve that. And I want it to be the absolute best, Lord. And again, not only just giving our best, but also having the right motives matters as well. Again, are our motives pure, like pure gold or like purified silver? Or do we have corrupt motives? It doesn't just matter to the Lord that I do things, but why do I do things? Am I doing them just at a grudging obligation or am I doing them with a pure motive because I just love Jesus and I really want to do something to bless and to help other people. That's the best way to work. But yet the Bible says it's the more rare way when it happens, sadly. Now, he uses the other idea of this as well, using, he says, wood, hay, and straw. And, of course, that picture is the opposite, using uh, just you know what is very common. And that would be the picture of perhaps you care way less about the work you do for the Lord or you're willing to invest way less in spiritual things. It requires a lot less sacrifice to gather up some hay, to use some wood, you know, to kind of disregard the quality. But again, if you put little value on the things of the Lord, that's kind of how you'll build. Instead of using the gold and silver and precious stones, you'll build with the kind of the wood, hay and straw. And that'll sort of be the approach. And that's the indication of when we care a lot less. We kind of disregard the quality. We're not as concerned about the long term. And, and we're more focused on the here and now and maybe accumulating all the gold and silver in our material life that we don't put much gold and silver into the spiritual life. We just give what's left over, a few sticks, a little wood, hay, and straw that we can find. And that's kind of what we throw at building up our spiritual lives. Or again, are we serving the Lord with motives that are more muddied? Again, that's how they would use the straw and the hay. They would mix it together with mud to make their walls. And again, are my motives muddied? Because I don't know about you, but I know sometimes I can do the right thing, but my motives are impure. And, and the Lord cares about our motives. He wants our motives to be pure before him because that's what he ultimately rewards. So again, it's not just what we do, but why we do it. And notice our spiritual service and work is going to one day be evaluated and tested. This is why it matters. That's why he says there in verse 13, each one's work is going to become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. And notice he doesn't say on a day, he says the day. He's referring there to the day of the Lord. That is that time period that begins with the removal of the church that then brings forth the tribulation and then the second coming of Christ and then the, the establishment of Christ's reign upon the earth for a thousand years, that day of the Lord. And as a part of that time period of the day of the Lord, the Bible teaches there is a judgment coming for Christians. Now, important that you understand that judgment is not to determine our salvation. That's not what it is. The great white throne judgment is for the unbeliever. 
The judgment that is coming for the believer has nothing to do with our salvation. That was already settled the moment you put your trust in Jesus Christ. The judgment that is coming for the believer that's spoken of here and in other places is a judgment to evaluate, listen, how we lived our Christian life after we got saved. How we served the Lord. What we did or didn't do in following Jesus to determine eternal rewards that we either earned or lost because of how we lived out the rest of our Christian life. You notice he says there, each believer's work is going to be tested by fire to reveal once for all what sort it was, to show the quality or the value of it. One translation says of this verse, the fire will test the quality of each person's work. Another translation renders it this way, but on the judgment day, fire will reveal what kind of work each builder has done and the fire will show if a person's work has any value see what god's telling us is how we live out our spiritual lives as followers of jesus christ from now until the moment we enter into the lord's presence it does matter it matters very much because it will be tested by the chief building inspector whether or not it earns acceptance or whether it does not And this should matter very much to us. On that day, everything I did or everything I ignored, why I did things or why I didn't do things, what I did and how well I did it is going to become clear and revealed because Jesus, who Revelation 1 says has eyes of fire, is going to look upon that and he's going to sort out what quality it was. So it reminds us that what we do or don't do and why we do things truly, truly matters. It truly does. Second Corinthians five says it this way. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, that is in the body, he says, to be well pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, it's in light of this fiery test of our spiritual works to validate how we worked and served the Lord, whether we're going to be rewarded or not, that Paul shows both outcomes in verses 14 and 15. He says, if anyone's work, which he has built on endures, that is, it makes it through the fires of the eternal testing of the quality of how we live for the Lord. Then he says, great news. He says, it's going to receive a reward. If it was gold and silver and precious stones, when our work and how we built is subject, if it was done right and well, there's a promise we will be rewarded. See, that's the encouragement to serve the Lord, to engage in his work, to build well spiritually, because you will be rewarded one day. You will. You may not see much of it now, but Jesus will reward it one day. And it's going to matter when you're in eternity. Again, to keep us from becoming distracted by building our whole life here on this earth in temporal failing things, the Lord says, be careful because all that's just going to burn up and diminish. But if you build well spiritually, you're going to receive reward. You're going to receive benefit. Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. It's also a reminder that our motives be pure because really it's the motive of the heart that Jesus considers even foremost. It's not just doing things. It's doing them with the right motive 
that really matters. That motive is going to be something that will endure through the fire. A faulty motive will be burned up, and we may do some things in this life. I'm certain that I have done things in this life for the Lord that aren't going to make it through the fire because he's going to say, you did the right thing, but your motive was not right at all. So our motive matters. We want to have a right motive in why we do it as well. Now, on the other side of this, the other outcome, he says, verse 15, but if anyone's work is burned, it's wood, hay, and, and straw. It doesn't make it through the fire. He says he will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, yet so as through fire. So the idea there is regretful loss for those who did things poorly in their spiritual lives, put little value in the things of the Lord or had wrong motives. If we care little, if we invest little, if we're not interested in making sacrifices for the Lord, we kind of just want to live the common, casual, non-committal Christian life that our flesh is so prone to want to gravitate into. Or if we had wrong motives, these things will be burned up when they're tested by fire and it's going to leave a whole lot of regret, a whole lot of regret, not just regret, but he says he will suffer loss. That's the idea of, of regret. Now, notice the, the suffering of the loss is suffering a loss of reward. We're going to suffer the loss of reward that would have enhanced, the, I think, the tremendous glory of our eternal experience. Now, look, follow with the text here. He wants to encourage us rewards loss, but our soul will still be saved. Don't misinterpret what the Bible's saying here. He says very clearly there, if his work is burned, he's going to suffer some loss, loss of reward that he could have enjoyed, but he himself will be saved. Our soul is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And he wants us to be encouraged by that. However, is it not interesting? He says, yet so as through fire, he'll be saved, but it'll be like being saved through fire. And it kind of makes me go, hmm, what, what does that mean? Maybe, I don't know, maybe perhaps it's implying here that some believers are going to enter into eternity kind of smelling like smoke because they just escaped the eternal fires of hell because they were a saved soul but an utterly wasted Christian life. I don't know about you. I don't want to enter in smoking. Another one just made it in. Go over there Cool them off. I don't want to make it in that way. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Listen, if we're going to live for the Lord, let's live for the Lord. If we're going to go through the hassle in this world of being a follower of Jesus, let's really follow Jesus. If we're going to say we're servants of the Lord, let's really serve the Lord. You know, the way I see it, my evaluation over the years, is it seems there's kind of almost two options that Christians kind of default into. Either they become a Christian consumer or they become a Christian contributor. Which are you? A Christian consumer. You know, they want to attend a church. Better be a good experience. Music better be good. Teaching better be good. Better have a good children's ministry. Better have a few extra bells and whistles, and I hope they have some programs. If not, we're going to keep shopping because we're consumers, and we expect customer service. And everything is about just consuming. Come, minister to me. Not enough people said hi to me. Again, what's the whole mind? Consumer, consumer, consumer. I'm, I'm here to consume. Nothing wrong to a degree. I'm not saying there's anything totally wrong. 
But sometimes that gets really out of balance. What I think is the more ideal thing is let's be a Christian contributor. Someone who says, yes, I want to come. I want to experience what I need to experience spiritually, but I'm a servant of Christ. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. We want to be contributors spiritually. Are you a Christian consumer or are you a Christian contributor? By the grace of God, may he help us to be Christian contributors.